This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, Sonia Harris. In this episode of Speakers Forum, it's part two of a series that seeks to amplify Asian voices and spark an ongoing dialogue about the experiences and contributions of Asian communities in our state. Spokane Public Radio starts this episode. You're listening to On Asian America from Spokane Public Radio. This is part of a series of programs we've created with Humanities Washington, KUOW, and Northwest Public Broadcasting. I'm Doug Nadvornik. I'm Rebecca White. 2021 marks the second consecutive year in a historic rise in hate crimes against Asians and Pacific Islanders. During the pandemic, there have been several violent attacks against Asians in California, New York, and in western Washington. A mass shooting in Atlanta left eight dead, six were Asian women. The Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism found that there have been a 164% increase in hate incidents against Asians in the nation's largest cities. But it estimates the number of hate crimes is much higher because many fear reporting. This hour, we talk with Spokane County residents, advocates for the Asian and Pacific Islander community, and researchers who have studied Asian American history, racism, and hate. They say racism is deeply intertwined with this country's history, and the spike in hatred during the pandemic is part of a repeating pattern. But many are speaking up about what they've faced, how they're working to overcome obstacles, and make lasting change in their communities. Pew Yan Lam the co-leader of the Spokane Asian and Pacific Islander Coalition, remembers vividly when she heard about the first case of coronavirus in the United States. When the news broke that we had the first case of COVID in the United States, and it was in um, Seattle, my immediate reaction was, you know, I have that um, kind of sick to the stomach feeling that besides having to do with the pandemic, that I thought we might see a rise of anti-Asian racism. So that was kind of my gut feeling at the time. I remember texting someone I, I worked with in community work. And also I remember posting something on, on Facebook along that line that, you know, we might have to brace a rise of uh, anti-Asian racism. In addition to her advocacy work for the Asian and Pacific Islander community, Lam is a sociology professor at Eastern Washington University. She said she knew history would repeat itself. A disease would be associated with an ethnic group. Despite the efforts of public health officials and others, uh, we are still unfortunately seeing the rise of anti-Asian racism, anti-Asian violence. She notes that during much of the pandemic, people were using racist language, like calling COVID-19 the China virus. Lam said she's heard from many of her students and other community members that they've been harassed because of their race while out in public and are afraid to do things they've always done. Racism against Asian Americans is not new, and, and there have been plenty of studies using different methodologies that have documented racism that Asian Americans experience. But, you know, that 
the pandemic have brought it out to the open that uh, racism, racial biases that might have been more hidden. Yu Young Kung, or Yuki as she prefers to go by, and her husband Chun Ju Yun, or CJ as he prefers to go by, have experienced racism many times since immigrating from Korea. The couple lives in Spokane, and CJ, who is a dentist, says he's always faced bias in the field. But the last year and a half have gotten much worse. Yeah, microaggressions and just credentialing question. Where did where did you go to school? Uh, how many years you're practicing? And just to continue to ask those questions, no matter what I explain, and no matter how much I want to deliver the, the best care for the, each patient that I face. So that's kind of a little different. At the same time, past year, past month actually, uh, I faced something more aggressive. You know, for example. He was my patient, but he was seen by other dentists and my uh, workplace, and then the other dentists from the overseas too. And then patient came to me, uh, came to the, our office again a second time, and then there are some issue there, the treatment that uh, delivered by the other uh, dentist, but nothing really serious, but just a small issue. And then patient was scheduled with me, and then patient came to the front desk. I did not know anything about it, so what's going on out there. But the patient said in front of so many people, I want to see only a white doctor. I do not want to see anyone from overseas. They don't know what they're doing. I interviewed CJ and Yuki at a Korean church in East Central Spokane. They went there when they first moved to the area looking for community. They've since moved to another church, but still have relationships with many longtime congregation members who recently shared with Yuki and the pastor that they've been very afraid for the last year. Racism has been part of their lives all throughout their lives here in Spokane. And someone even mentioned that, well, one, one, uh, one person mentioned that she actually, when she first came to Spokane, it was mostly friendly. Everybody was saying hi because she, I think she moved from the um, Seattle area to here. And she noticed that a lot of people were friendly. They would say hi. But this past year, she has been more resistant in greeting people that way on the street, right? Always being afraid what they might think because they would hear stories from their other friends. Uh, For instance, their friend was out walking their dog in the park and the other dog was unleashed. And she said something, can you please put a leash around your dog? And he was really hostile. This white man was, uh, yeah, being really hostile. So then she never goes out to the park alone again to walk her dog. And stories like that, I think, just around the community, has everybody afraid of not to be too um, expressive or avert. The couple have taken some concrete steps to keep their family safe and tried to address racism in their lives. Yuki said they're now driving their teenage daughter to school out of concern for her safety and have connected her with older mentors and started to have hard conversations about race and the trauma she might face as she gets older. They've also decided to speak out about their own experiences. Yeah, systemic racism has been there many, many, many years. And it's, it's been getting better, I believe, slowly but surely. Think? Yeah, <laughs> surely. But we recognize more and more issues as we go through it. Before, we didn't even know. Or we knew that, but we didn't want to talk about it. But right now, I think it, because of this, the pandemic, because of uh, all the things that we go through these days right now, I think it's a great, I mean, not the great, great time, but the, it's a good time for us to review ourselves, mm-hmm. that how our immigrant history and mm-hmm. uh, how we can step up more.
And, and that's another thing that we've been talking about as a couple, um, as first-generation immigrants. And when we look at our uh, previous generation, the immigrants that came here, the first-generation, they worked hard. And to some extent, it, they've been also in their own bubbles, right? Not really uh, knowledgeable of the, the, the U.S. history and how race and racial issues has developed. So... Um, when I talk to first gen other first generation immigrants, um, I'm hoping that we can kind of all educate ourselves on what's really going the history of it and where we stand. That's Yuki, who, along with her husband CJ, shared their experience as Korean immigrants in Spokane. You're listening to On Asian America. Let's go now to Spokane Valley, where Genevieve Haywood has enjoyed having her college-age daughter home for this academic year. Haywood is the pastor of the Veradale United Church of Christ. Her daughter is finishing her first year as a Washington State University freshman. Her name is Hana. It's H-A-N-A. It's like, you know, the road to Hana in Hawaii and the place there? That's where I'm named after. My great-grandmother lived on the road, and her name was Hana, so that's where it came from. Hana's mom is white and of German descent. Hana inherited her Hawaiian looks from her father. I think my ancestral home is Maui. And so my great-grandmother on my father's side was Hawaiian and Cantonese and married a German man. And so German, Hawaiian, and then my mom is also German. Genevieve Haywood has counseled Hana, we agreed not to use her last name, and tried to prepare her for what she might encounter. Throughout my entire life, my mom has always told me that I look different, I look exotic, and that some people might abuse that or use that. I don't, I never thought I looked that different than other people. I don't see myself in the crowd. I just see me. I just am me. I mean, I love my culture and I love where I come from, but I don't ever see that as being like something that makes me different. But the recent killings of six Asian women in Atlanta made her think. All of a sudden it was like, okay, now people who are like me are getting killed. I mean... That violence, I don't think, began now. I think that violence isn't something that's been going on for a very long time, and now it's just in the media. And it's weird, in a way, to see that that's, like, my people. I mean, we're all people. We're all a community. So any hate towards anyone, I think, is our people. But, like, weird to know that it's now, like, closer to home. And it's kind of scary, but kind of sad. This is Genevieve Haywood. We hear the stories of parents talking to their black sons, about what they need to do to keep themselves safe and talking to Hana about what she needs to do to keep herself safe. You get your keys out before you go to your car. You always park in a place that has light. There are stories that moms tell their daughters. And for Hana, one of the stories she has to understand is that men see her as exotic. I'm not sure if the word is trophy or triumph or what it is that she has to know she draws extra attention and of 
of people that could do her harm. So she has to be just a little bit more vigilant. Have you ever felt any of that? Um, Growing up, going to school, were you? Do you think you, the boys saw you as something that's exotic? Um, well, when I went to school in California, it was a different world because there was so much diversity there. That wasn't weird to be a different culture. It was prized. It was wonderful that there was so many different cultures. Coming here was definitely a shock to the system because here it's so, I mean, for lack of a better word, it's so white. And I didn't think that that was like, this is abnormal to me. Well, this is normal to people here. And I honestly don't know if, because I never thought, like, I never really processed that maybe it was the way I looked or um, whatever culture I had. But there were people who would be like, they think I have an Asian mom because I work so hard at school. I mean, I think to a lot of people in America, Asian is China. And that is all of that. And I think... It's really unfair to the other cultures because there's so much diversity there. And my great-grandmother would be very offended because she was Cantonese. She was not Chinese. She was Cantonese. The part for me is that it shouldn't be lumped together because they are so different. And it's almost disrespecting the history of them because they have worked hard to be where they are. And to lump them all in one is like lumping all Americans into one. We're just all a bunch of white people. We're not. We're a bunch of different people. People are different. And when people lump them together, it can be offensive and it can be mean. Hannah looks forward to this fall and her first chance to experience college in Pullman. Her mom thinks she's ready to go. She's had boxing lessons. She's had um, martial arts lessons. So she is doing what she can to help herself protect herself. And then I hope always she has at least one other person with her. There are all these things. And then to send her off and say, okay, you know what to do. And if bad things happen, mom's here, home is here, and you're smart enough, we'll work it out. Genevieve Haywood is the pastor of the Veradale United Church of Christ in Spokane Valley. Her daughter, Hannah, is a Washington State University student. Speak now 
Can you hear the angels sing low? Speak now, speak now. Listen, listen to the message of hope and the whispers of ghosts. Listen, listen. While the storm in your heart is raging, listen, 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 listen to the echoes of martyrs praying, listen, 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 brothers and sisters, listen, listen. I swear we'll never find a way to where we're going all alone. Don't take your eyes off the road. Can you hear the bells ring out? Speak now, speak now. Can you hear the angels sing loud? Message of hope and the whispers of ghosts. Listen, listen, listen. For the children will grow on the seeds that we sow. They listen, they listen. Oh, listen, brothers and sisters, listen. In this segment, we talk with three Spokane area historians who have studied Chinese immigration to the U.S. We'll go all the way back to the mid-1800s. The story begins with Gonzaga history professor Vita Schlimgen. 
when Chinese migrants were leaving southern China in the 1840s. They looked for opportunities in the Pacific, and what they found was that there were gold fields. Whether they could migrate to California or Australia or what is today Indonesia, to try to find some opportunities that they didn't have at home. So they would send their resources, their children, their family members out into the Pacific, and many of them came to the United States. They ended up settling in the West Coast, doing some digging in the gold fields of California, along with migrants from the rest of the world who all rushed to California.、Um, but migrants from China were targeted by other gold miners, especially those who were born in the U.S. or felt a connection to the U.S. Who decided that Chinese、uh, miners were somehow not entitled to the resources that they were all scrambling for in the gold diggings, and so the first violence against Asian immigrants was against Chinese immigrants in 1854 in the California diggings, and but that didn't stop、uh, Chinese migrants from from looking for opportunities in the United States. So. They stayed in the Bay Area. They went to other parts of the West, so to Washington State, which was Oregon Territory at the time,、um, to the Mountain West, like Montana and Idaho, and throughout California. And so they did a variety of different types of jobs. They were miners. They worked in, a little bit in agriculture. They did labor in cities. And so、uh, in California, they're quite well known for running very successful laundries and restaurants. So doing a lot of the the labor that's necessary for communities that、um, that these miners weren't willing to do for themselves. As more Chinese people came to the U.S., Schlimgen said Americans saw them as threats, and they worked to scare the newcomers away. They did face violence. Both,、uh, you know, intimidation, threats of violence, actual violence, and then legislative violence. And so, for example, in Seattle, the Seattle-Tacoma area in 1885 to 86, there was a Knights of Labor group that decided they were going to target all the Chinese immigrants and ethnic Chinese people in the region. And so they literally went to their homes, tried to remove them from their homes, take them down to the wharf, and tell them to leave. And they, of course, didn't have passage. So then the Knights of Labor scurried to try to find the the revenue to buy them tickets to to run them out of town, basically. And so that's an example of the way that communities consolidated against、uh, Chinese workers who were, again, they were just looking for opportunities like everyone else in the community. They weren't a threat to these communities, but their neighbors saw them as threats. It was around that time in the 1880s that the U.S. government did its part to increase the pressure on Chinese workers, with a law known as the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Gonzaga history professor Ray Rast says it was the first American law that targeted a particular group of immigrants coming to the U.S. Well, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. <laughs> there's a lot to it, but、um, in a nutshell, in the 1870s, you had a growing number of Uh, European descent American workers, working class,、um, in some cases labor union members, who were,、um, you know, fighting for opportunities to work, and were being told that these、uh, Chinese immigrants, among others, were threatening their jobs, threatening their own、um, economic stability, their own livelihoods,、um, and they were an easy target. You know, in periods of economic decline or economic downturn during recessions. People tend to look for scapegoats, and the nearest、um, and and most visibly different scapegoats at the time、uh, were Chinese immigrants. So a lot of agitation came from
California, uh, you know, with its representation in Congress. And so this is a federal law. So there were um, the, the politics of the East Coast that were starting to pay attention to the politics of the West Coast. Um, and it was something that was, uh, you know, called for for many years before, but finally 1882, uh, it passes and goes into effect. There were some exemptions for, um, you know, some of the wealthiest uh, immigrants. It was used primarily targeting working-class Chinese immigrants, which, which its supporters intended. And, you know, unfortunately, it affirmed the racism and racist hostility that fueled support for the legislation. And so in many ways, it, it, it was an affirmation. You know, here's, here's the federal government over in Washington, D.C. saying, yes, you're right. If you feel some hostility, if you think these people are trying to take your jobs, you're right. And so it's a, a stamp of approval, right? It sanctioned that hostility and it, it affirmed it and made people think that they were on the right path with this hostility. So after 1882, it was open season on Chinese immigrant workers um, in California, in Oregon, in Washington. There were uh, growing numbers of uh, physical attacks on Chinese workers um, with this sense that uh, any acts of violence would be uh, tolerated, law, law enforcement would look the other way. Um, and in the short term, that ended up driving Chinese immigrants into cities like San Francisco, like Seattle, Tacoma, Portland, seeking sanctuary. Um, unfortunately, again, in Seattle and Tacoma in particular, um, you know, the, the population of Chinese immigrants was less than a thousand. So, you know, momentum led to points in 1885 and 1886 where Chinese immigrants were literally um, rounded up, put onto wagons in Seattle, taken to um, the waterfront and boarded onto steamships that were, that were leaving port. And these men were forced onto those ships and told, do not return. In the case of Tacoma, after they left, the Chinatown was burned to the ground uh, with, with no evidence of it remaining. The story in San Francisco is different because the numbers there were so strong, tens of thousands, and, and you know, it would have been impossible to drive out that many. But when the numbers are in, in the hundreds, um, you know, in the context of the time, that became something that people thought was a good idea. The Chinese Exclusion Act stayed on the books for decades. 1882 is a major benchmark, but you really go to 1924 would be the, in terms of stepping stones and looking at legislation that affirmed or, or, or extended that exclusion focusing on Chinese immigrants and, and really spread it to Japanese immigrants in particular. Relations changed in the context of World War II. China's our ally, um, so a sense of revisiting that. But then the, the next major step is 1965 with the uh, Immigration and Naturalization Act of, of 1965 signed by President Johnson, and then it went into effect in 1968. And so a major part of that effort of that legislation was to overturn, um, to undo those racially restrictive provisions that, that really applied to Chinese and other Asian immigrants. You know, so 60, 80 years of these restrictions in place, and, um, and the, you know, their impact is really impossible to grasp. You know, it's so profound. How would our country be different uh, if we had treated um, other people from other places differently in the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century? That's Ray Rast, a Gonzaga University history professor.
Li Ping Zhu, a history professor at Eastern Washington University, has written several books about Chinese workers and communities in the Pacific Northwest and California, and the violence they were subjected to. In human histories, we see the in the process with this ethnic cleansing, we see the violence against a group. You know, right? Usually, we see the with assistance of、uh, legal measures,、mm-hmm. laws, and.、Uh, In California, in one case called the、uh, People versus Hall, George Hall was an Irishman and、uh, murdered a Chinese. And、uh, during the trials, two Chinese testify, and、uh, later they appeal. They say, "You know, Chinese court, according to California criminal code, you know, Mongolians cannot testify." And so, as a result, during the appeal, they reversed with the. The decision. First, he was、uh, sentenced to be hanged, and now we see that he was acquitted. After this, you know, you look at the next, the following two decades, and、uh, the violence against the Chinese increased sharply because they know you cannot testify against we see the the me, right? You embolden the perpetrator. So when as we see the you say the dehumanization, we see the right view them as non-human government. Embolden them. Embolden. You know, of course,、uh, we see the twenty、uh, years later, it declared you know this ruling unconstitutional. But however, the damage has been done you know, for twenty years. Zhu said, throughout American history, immigrants and non-white ethnic groups have been linked with drugs or disease. He noted, in history, Asians were linked with opium and were blamed for disease outbreaks. In American history: there are two presidential elections. Focus on the immigration. One was、uh, the 1880. My book deal with another is 2016. In、um, 1880, particularly in the last two weeks of the presidential elections, and they mainly focus on the one issue: the James Garfield's. We see the letter. Somebody we know, probably you know, from the Democratic National Committee. They fabricate Republican candidate James Garfield. The letter said, "You know, he want to import twenty thousand Chinese. Immediately proved it was a false. But however, the damage had been done. That is a typical, you know, the October surprise." He said there are clear parallels between that history in the 1880 election, which occurred just two years before the Chinese Exclusion Act, and the 2016 election, where Donald Trump was focused on unauthorized immigrants at the southern border. He said the tendency to blame a country's problems on an ethnic group is a cycle that's repeated throughout this country's history. During disease outbreaks in the early 1900s, at the Mexican border in 2016, and now during the pandemic. Today it's the same. If you talk about which is the yeah the chat. China disease, right? We see the it's extremely we see the dangerous, you know, for this kind of you know the reckless,、uh, you know, the rhetoric. Some we see that we see that did it purposely. Some may you know do you know unintentionally, but however, it will cause we see the all these consequences. America's attitudes toward Asian immigration have not been consistent and not always negative. We return to Gonzaga history professor Vita Schlimgen, whose research specialty is immigration from the Philippines into the U.S. She says the American attitude toward Filipino immigrants was different, at least initially. 
as uh, Filipinos migrated to the U.S. in greater numbers in the 1920s and 30s, they were they did not fit that stereotype, the stereotype that Americans had created of Asians as being culturally uh, very, very different, not understanding the, the way that the loyalty to the emperor, either of China or Japan, worked, um, having different culture, like um, practicing Confucianism or Buddhism. That wasn't the case with Filipinos, who'd been part of a European colony for centuries. They were most of them Catholic. They had a lot of experience with European culture. And so when they came to the U.S., it didn't look too different to them. Um, but because they were vaguely Asian to white Americans. Um, white Americans worked really hard to kind of shoehorn them into that stereotype. Um, and so it is really interesting how even the slightest physical similarity is going to mobilize um, this nativism. And, and so, in fact, that's what happened to Filipino migrants. They were targeted by nativist movements who said that they were taking jobs, which was the the rhetoric mobilized against Japanese immigrants and Chinese immigrants before them. They said that they were um, degrading the, the work that everyone did, um, but they added on for Filipino migrants that they were a menace because they were dating white women. And so that layered in a new element of anti-Asian sentiment. And in fact, I think that this hostility made Filipinos Asian, where before they were ambiguous in terms of how they were classified in the United States, but also how they thought of themselves. I, I think about the contradictions that we have toward Asian people, and I, I go back to one uh, in the in the 70s when the Vietnam War ended. Yeah. A lot of Vietnamese people were brought to the United States. Mm -hmm. I remember our Catholic parish was adopting a few of these, and so we we accepted so many people from Vietnam, Cambodia, and others and welcomed them into our into our communities. And yet at the same time, we have this kind of love-hate relationship with these yeah. types of folks. Yeah, you know, those are, that's a good example that really with, the, in the 1970s, the I think the biggest waves of Asian migration that we see is refugees from Vietnam, from Cambodia. And these refugees were exceptions in U.S. immigration law. They were embraced, they were welcomed in as people fleeing communism. Um, and at the same time, there's also this hostility and almost suspicion um, against uh, Asian immigrants who who might be, still might be a fifth column. Maybe they are actually communists who are, are infiltrating the United States. And so, yeah, there's this, um, this duality in terms of of embracing, but also censuring and developing hostility towards Asian Americans. And I think you see this also in this myth of the model minority, where uh, today we have, we see the expressions of this attitude that somehow just because someone is ethnically Asian, they're going to be spectacularly good at math or computing. And um, that, that attitude is inaccurate. It does not in no way reflects the interests of the individual person. Um, but then it is also used as a, a point of hostility towards Asian Americans. They don't get to be uh, a, a previously oppressed minority group because they are so great at math and computing, because they've been elevated to this notion of the, the model minority. I asked Vita Schlimgen how the Atlanta murders and other contemporary acts of violence against Asian people fits into this history? It seems to fit in in several ways in terms of the attitude or the impression that somehow 
Asians are not American when they are. It also, I think, because the perpetrator of this violence targeted uh, places where it's predominantly Asian women who work, that it also expresses these attitudes, this hostility and animosity towards Asian women in particular. And so in that respect, it also echoes this notion of embrace and rejection um, because Asian women have been exoticized and eroticized uh, oftentimes by white Americans. This exotification also comes with this sense of, of rejecting Asian women because they wouldn't be like wives, that they're really more um, exotic. Does history teach us something in this case? History does have lessons for us. And in this case, I guess I, I can't think of the violence against Asian Americans as separate from the violence, the police violence against African Americans and Black Lives Matter. Because I think that what we're referring to more broadly are these stereotypes developed over generations that are really ingrained into the American psyche and that Americans have now come to act on them, act on the manifestations of them over the past year. And I have to wonder if this is connected to the pandemic and the way that our lives have been so greatly disrupted and changed so significantly. And so in part, we see American allies recognizing police violence as something that is intolerable. And that's part of the reason why we saw so many hundreds and thousands, even in Spokane, demonstrating over the past year. And so I think that this violence against Asian Americans is a manifestation of those long-held stereotypes. And it's finding expression now, perhaps because we have been in quarantine for so long, but also because we have seen in um, in our popular media a fueling of the connection between the pandemic that has disrupted our lives and something in Asia. Uh, and so by fueling that connection, I think that that has allowed people to act on these biases in extreme ways by murdering and harming women in Atlanta, but elderly people on the street and and young mothers uh, caring for their children. So it's something that I think shows us how the United States is still reckoning with our history, that we have to be aware of the way that these stereotypes are a part of our culture, part of our psyche, and we have to acknowledge them and that through acknowledging them, we can realize that they really have no merit. And I hope uh, when we realize they have no merit, then we can consciously push back against them. That's Gonzaga University history professor Vita Schlimgen. People are pushing back against stereotypes here in Spokane and trying to educate about the tactics used to marginalize people of Asian heritage. We'll talk about that when we return. You're listening to On Asian America from Spokane Public Radio.
Activist Ping Ping said she's seen the danger of damaging rhetoric against Asian people playing out in the Spokane area and more broadly. Ping Ping is one of the founding members of the Spokane Community Against Racism and is a member of the State Commission on Asian and Pacific Islander Issues. And for AAPI community here, um, we were often um, perceived as, um, especially for Asian Americans, we were often perceived as model minority, like we don't have issues. But this is proven totally wrong, especially after the pandemic started last March. Um, I have seen many hate um, incidents here. Maybe they're, they're not to the law standard hate crime, but they were definitely hate incidents in Spokane happening to people I know. She said she's always been committed to all people of color and disenfranchised groups, in part to combat things like the model minority myth, which pits minority groups against each other. We really want to um, build our relationships because the two communities uh, were set up to pit against each other. And I really think this is very urgent need for the, for the local um, Black and Asian communities to start very, um, very honest and sincere conversation that uh, we need to speak up. Why are our two communities are in the um, tension relationship. How, what kind of the, uh, you know, historical and current conditions contributing to the damaged relationships? What, what can we do to, 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 because we are not each other's enemy. Ping and her daughter, Rosie Zhou, have organized a solidarity event in Spokane's Black, Asian, and Pacific Islander community and are continuing that work. In response to the violence and fear that Asian and Pacific Islander communities have endured this year, Ping also helped translate the Spokane Crime Check reporting line information into Chinese. She and her daughter also helped organize a vigil for the victims of the Atlanta shooting. Ping said there are also areas where more work needs to be done to support AAPI issues, such as addressing language barriers, healthcare, and how those issues are taught in the education system. In daily life, we need to do more work Tough work also, in, for example, how our K-12 educational system in the te- uh, textbook, especially in the history tech, uh, courses, that um, it does not have a very comprehensive uh, education about API uh, contributions to the United States, how the Asian Asian Americans struggle. Her daughter, Rosie Zhou, who attended Spokane Community Against Racism meetings while she was in middle school alongside her mother, has tried to address that. Throughout my entire time in the education system, just noticed a lack of um, accurate and representative curriculum, um, especially in history classes, that teach about Asian American history. I remember just learning about like the Japanese internment camps of World War II and maybe a little bit about like the Chinese Exclusion Act, but that was really the extent of it. And so I felt like I, um, I started learning much more about it, much more um, Asian American history. Actually, my junior year when I was doing a speech for my speech and debate class, um, about like the model minority myth, and that's when I started researching all of these things and and learning um, like all of these events that have happened in the past, and 
um, things that have happened towards Asian Americans in history that I just had no idea of before. Do you tell me a little bit more about that and maybe kind of what, what you learned in school versus, you know, what you know to be true? I just feel like Asian Americans have been, like, erased from from curriculum, um, and that's really harmful because it kind of shows that it leads to people thinking, like, oh, like, they don't, um, they've never contributed anything to this country, uh, they're just foreigners, um, you know, nothing, they haven't faced racial discrimination in the past, when all of that is really false when you look at actual things that have happened in history, like the L.A. massacre um, and, uh, of course, the Chinese Exclusion Act, but also other laws and policies that have harmed, harmed Asian Americans. In February, Zoe wrote a poem she published as a letter to the editor in the Spokesman Review. She also recently wrote a column which shares the story of Vincent Chin, a Chinese-American who was beaten to death by two white men, and how that hatred can be linked to violent crimes like the Atlanta shooting. She also recently approached the Spokane Public School Board with her concerns about how Asian history is taught in school. They actually set up a meeting with me, um, and we just talked a lot more about just what I was feeling, why I felt compelled to reach out to them about it. And they're hoping to launch like a survey next year, um, beginning of the next school year, just um, asking students about whether they feel like they've actually learned about Asian American history ever in class and just, you know, anything that they feel they need to see more in in curriculum. Zoe plans to minor in history when she goes to Columbia University this fall and major in political science. She said she's thought about running for office someday and knows she'll still be organizing in her community wherever she ends up. While people like Rosie Zoe and Ping Ping are working at the community level, Christine Hoover is working with individuals to help them understand their own attitudes and biases. Hoover's the director of Gonzaga's Institute for Hate Studies and an associate professor of organizational leadership. This summer, she and three Ph.D. students are teaching a course called Leadership Strategies to Counter Hate. Our students this summer will be doing research on the stories of resiliency and strength of four communities. And it's just a portion of their story, and there's certainly many more communities. We're simply going to focus on the indigenous communities, the black communities, the Latin X communities, and the Asian American Pacific Islander communities. So the students will do research on understanding their histories in Spokane, and then identify two specific sites with the guidance of community liaisons. And ideally, those sites will, cl- will select two sites from each community where they're going to tell the story, for example, of Carl Maxey that relates to Carl Maxey. Or they'll tell the stories of the Monaghan statue. Or they'll tell stories that have been identified. For example, there's a location here near Gonzaga's campus where an individual was hung. Right There's a lynching site near here that has no... No placard, no notice, no no idea that that's the hollow ground where that happened. So a lot of this work that the students are going to be doing is digital archival research. So they're working with Foley Library, they're working with historians like Dr. Ray Rast here in um, Gonzaga, and they're also working with Spokane historian uh, Logan Camperiel. Their research will help the university and others to develop a one-day event in September when members of the public will be guided on a walking tour of some of the downtown area's most significant historic sites. The purpose of the class 
does create this important living artifact. And it also creates the skills for the students to go back into their own communities, wherever they're coming to us from, to help tell their stories in their own locales. So this, in essence, not only has a significant impact on the Spokane area, but then has an impact in many communities across the United States. Change doesn't come about just by activism, by speaking out and trying to persuade others to change their views. Sometimes it comes one person at a time, people intentionally questioning and challenging their own beliefs. I'm deeply saddened that we have lost our ability to value one another and to simply understand each other by saying, wow, where did that come from? Or how did you understand that? Or how did you come to to think that that was a good solution or a good way forward, right? Parker Palmer often says, or is often quoted as saying, when things get tough, turn to wonder. So when I hear, when I feel the hair on the back of my neck standing on end because someone said something that I just can't really fathom, really? How can I pause and turn to wonder? And that's my work. That's where I have control in a difficult situation, right? And so always making sure that you're safe, but at the same time, not standing by, right? Silence is complicity. So when you can breathe and take a moment, how do you lean into that conversation? And how do you lean in a way that says, I'd really like to understand better because I need to understand you to meet you in your context. How can I understand where you're at in your journey? Because if we hate the hater, we really have done nothing to lead towards transforming our communities and our, and our organizations. One of the things that I'm most frustrated about that, that I really want to find the time to address is for people who feel they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't, right? If I say something, I'm going to say the wrong thing. If I say nothing, I'm being complicit. And so what do I do? And how do we lean into those conversations, right? How do we open the doors so that this is not about shame, it's not about blame, but it's about how can we move forward if we don't invite and listen to one another? Because when people feel attacked, right, even verbally, they're not going to engage in the conversation that's going to help us move forward. And so opening those doors to the conversation is, I think, the very serious work that we need to lean into, but doing the work ourselves so that we come to those conversations with the intention to listen. Starting with the um, anti-racist examine really asks us to do that self-reflection to prepare so that we can enter into conversations valuing diversity, which also means people who are on the other side of the aisle who have all sorts of kinds of differences in whatever our worldviews may be and whatever our lived experiences are. But how do I value that? Not because you're different from me and so I want to cancel you, because you're different from me and I want to learn about you. Christine Hoover is an associate professor of organizational leadership at Gonzaga and director of its Institute for Hate Studies. To finish where we started, Pu Yan Lam, the co-leader of the Spokane Asian and Pacific Islander Coalition, said she and other community leaders have tried to prepare for and prevent anti-Asian violence in a number of ways, including bystander intervention training. She said the training is meant to give people a few guidelines to help someone who's being targeted leave the situation safely. 
not as some sort of dramatic intervention which could lead to violence or make a victim feel less safe. It could be, you know, simple acts to to kind of interrupt what is happening, but especially with the emphasis on on the person being targeted, that we we want to follow kind of the the lead or or the wish of the person being targeted, what that person wants to be done, and so I think it is important to 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 respect that you're trying to help that person, you're trying to care for that person, and so ultimately is also what that person want, you know, in terms of what kind of help, in terms of uh, what they want to do, you know, after the events, you know, whether they want to report it, you know, things like that. Lam said that bystander intervention is one of many ways that the community can help their Asian and Pacific Islander neighbors. She said despite the suffering and inequities many Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders have endured during the pandemic, there have been a few things that have given her hope. Young Asian Americans are learning more about their family, culture, and nation's true history. And organizers are discussing and advocating that government leaders provide more resources for underserved communities. There is a lot of work that needs to be done, and I hope that at least, you know, what could come up come out of these painful experiences is that we are paying closer attention to it and there are going to be more concerted efforts in addressing these racial inequities that our community experience, the racism that our communities experience. On Asian America is one part of a public radio collaboration with Humanities Washington to highlight important topics like voting and violence against Asian Americans. Our public radio partners, Northwest Public Broadcasting and KUOW, have also produced programs for this series. We'll wrap it up with an on-air discussion in mid-June. Stay tuned to this station to learn more about that. Rebecca White and I wrote and produced this program with editing and production help from Carrie Boyce. If you missed any part of this or you just want to hear it again, visit SpokanePublicRadio.org and click on the Regional News tab. I'm Doug Nadvornik. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for tuning in to this special episode of Speakers Forum, featuring part two of the On Asian America series. To find this talk as well as part one of the series, go to our website, KUOW.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thanks for listening. Tune in again soon.